Welcome to the Breakwater Podcast. I am Samantha, the Drug-Free Communities Grant Coordinator and your host for today's podcast. On this episode, I am joined by Dr. Eric Smiltnik, Family Practice Physician and Board Certified Addiction Specialist, and Dr. Sean Lanou, Child, Adolescent, Adult, and Addiction Psychiatrist. We talk a little bit about medication-assisted treatment, or MAT, and why talking to your children about substance use is so important, even at an early age. The doctors do a great job of breaking down physiologic response of our bodies to certain hormones and how substances can either disrupt our natural balance or work to restore any imbalances that may be happening. We have a link to 211 and other resources in our show notes. And don't forget to visit our website at www.breakwaterwi.org to learn more about what we're doing to help prevent substance use throughout the Winnebago County area and how you can get involved. We invite you to join the conversation on our social media channels. Let us know what you think and what you'd like to know more about. Dr. Smiltnik and Lanou are up next. So I'm joined today by Dr. Lanou and Dr. Smiltnik. I'm just going to have you guys each introduce yourselves a little bit if you don't mind sharing who you are and what you do. Dr. Lanou, let's start with you. Thank you so much for having me. Um, really appreciate it. So I'm Sean Lanou. I'm an adult and child and adolescent psychiatrist and also an addiction psychiatrist. And I uh, work with Rogers Behavioral Health, um, which is a national organization and we provide mental health and addiction recovery services. And so I work a lot with adolescents and adults and, and families um, who are struggling uh, with the grips and the throes of, of addiction and the way that it's, you know, really, really impacted their lives, I think is pretty significant. Not only we know historically, but also during this pandemic. So that, that's, that's more about me, but I just want to say thank you so much for having us today. Absolutely. Dr. Smeltnik. So my name is Eric Smeltnik and I'm a family medicine doctor who also is boarded in addiction medicine. I practice at Advocate Aurora, primarily in Oshkosh, and then I'm also um, medical director of a couple residential treatment facilities in the area, Nova Counseling Services, Landine, and then I do some work with the Community Corrections Program, ARC program in Fond du Lac. Like Dr. Lanou, I spend a lot of time working with patients and families who are affected by a variety of addictions, and I spend a, lot, a fair amount of time um, doing some teaching as well. I kind of echoed um, Dr. Lanou's sentiments that this is a very important topic at this time that a lot of people are kind of struggling with diseases of despair, which addiction is, is kind of a, a highlight of that, and that, that there is definitely help available through a number of different agencies. Awesome. Again, thank you all for being here today. And what we want to talk about today is MAT or medication assisted treatment. All of you, I think in your introductions have talked a little bit about stigma and how big of a struggle addiction, accessing treatment or finding treatment ha is, especially now during a pandemic. So MAT typically has, you know, some whispers and thoughts and feelings surrounding it in communities. So why don't we open it up and kind of just talk about what MAT is and maybe what it isn't. Is anyone willing to tackle that one? Yeah, I think MAT at its core is 
evidence-based treatment, um, plain and simple. And while I think that the, the label of, of sort of categorizing, okay, these are medications, you know, related to recovery, right, um, is important. I also think that there's a bit of stigma and it's a bit, there's a bit of a misnomer there as well in that these medications are FDA approved and really no different than med other medications that we use within mental health, behavioral health. And frankly, no different um, in, than medications that we use in other areas of medicine as well. And so, you know, when we talk about MAT, what is it at its core? Medication-assisted treatment is going to be, you know, medications we're going to think about like buprenorphine or Suboxone, Naltrexone or Vivitrol, the long-acting formulation there, Antabuse, uh, you know, Camprol, um, Acamprosate. Um, among other medications, certainly nicotine replacement therapy um, would, would fall in line with, with MAT. At its core, these are medications that work in different, through different pathways in our bodies and aid in recovery. That, that is the main goal here is recovery. And these medications are most effective and, you know, the evidence-based guidelines would say that they should absolutely be used in conjunction whenever possible with psychotherapy and evidence-based therapy uh, and treatment that's going to help think about a person holistically in their recovery and thinking about how we can help people who are struggling with addiction to get back to living, get back to the things in their life that are really important to them, whether it's family and friends or job and community getting back to those things. I'm certainly happy to turn it over here in a moment to our team, but I would also just say too that, you know, sometimes there is stigma associated with medications like buprenorphine and that it's it's only replacing one addiction for another. And and I, I hear where people are, are coming from when they say that, um, but I, I think there's also misinformation there as well. It, you know, at its, at its core, these medications help to reduce cravings and reduce substance use and relapse. And, you know, if we were to think about a, um, an analogous situation in other areas of medicine, diabetes, for example, someone who has type one diabetes, their pancreas may not make the appropriate amount of insulin that their body needs in order to aid with glucose metabolism and other really important functions in their body. So we, we replace, um, you know, insulin with, with other forms in order to help maintain a balance and homeostasis. This too is really no different than that in other ways. Um, and in similar ways. So I, I think, you know, the more, frankly, that we're able to just to talk about what, you know, addiction is, what these medications are and what they're not, certainly the better. Yeah, and I have a couple other things to add. So thanks a lot. That was a really great kind of introduction to what MAT is. Um, my background as a, as a family medicine doctor, and I kind of view the idea of like family or internal medicine as um, really having kind of two hats. One is um, the treatment of chronic disease. And the second hat is, is prevention of significant illness or premature death. And I think um, what a lot of times that I'm doing and when I kind of talk with my patients, regardless of whether they have asthma or whether they have diabetes or whether they have depression or whether they have addiction, is really how... Um, what do we need for you to treat your chronic 
disease process? And then what do we need to prevent um, significant um, comorbidities or premature death? And basically that's um, um, a lot of times that may be counseling or that may be um, um, intensive outpatient programs or residential treatment programs. And I think we can get into a lot of those things or um, NA or AA meetings, but the, there also are, um, um, is a role for medicines in a lot of the chronic diseases. And there is really good evidence that um, medicines, um, like Dr. Lanou was talking about, um, um, whether it be buprenorphine or whether it be methadone or whether it be camprosate or naltrexone, that these have good data behind them that they're going to reduce cravings, they're going to reduce relapse. Um, but the other thing is, is that they're going to um, potentially present, prevent um, um, overdoses or death. Um, and and I think that's that's kind of the important thing too is that um, and um, a lot of the um, treatment facilities that were a little reluctant to use like a med -like medicine like buprenorphine um, have kind of come around in that they were saying, you know, it's not really acceptable that somebody is leaving our facility and overdosing and dying within a week or two. If you discharge somebody from the hospital with heart disease after having a heart attack and they died within 30 days, there'd be a massive review and it would be questionable whether your facility was safe or not. Um, but in the kind of the treatment realm, this was kind of a, a thought where we said, well, that sometimes happens. Like people sometimes do this. And what we were able to say is, well, if, if we utilize some of these medications, the, um, the likelihood of people having a significant relapse or potentially dying is, um, is much less. So, so that's um, another piece in kind of the role. The other thing is that um, I like to talk, talk to my patients about is that um, there are different portions of the brain. There's what's called sort of the mesolimbic system, which is more of a primitive system of the brain. And then there's the prefrontal cortex. And a lot of times we'll talk about people making stupid decisions over and over again. And you say, well, why do they keep making these stupid choices? They know that like, they're going to lose their job if they drink again, or they're going to lose their child if they, um, if they use heroin again. And you, you say, well, it's really not, it hasn't gotten to the level of, of sort of conscious. It's almost in this unconscious, uh, unconscious sort of primordial thing. And that's really, if, if that's where their addiction is stuck, we, the medicines are really helpful to bring people into a place where they can, um, where they're ready to talk about how do I prevent my relapses or how do I deal with my cravings through that? And, and um, other than like techniques like deep meditation and stuff like that, a lot of the cognitive behavioral therapies don't really access this, this real primordial part of the brain. Excellent. Thank you for that description and overview of both MAT, medication-assisted treatment, and addiction. Um, you started talking about it, and maybe you answered it fully, Dr. Smiltnik, but as you were talking, both of you, and comparing the, the disease of addiction to diseases like diabetes, um, you know, and I think, you know, you have type 1 diabetes, you have type 2 diabetes, and a lot of times in type 2 diabetes, people will talk about the 
how lifestyle choices led you to type two diabetes, but you still do use medication as well as like diabetic education and coaching to help correct that. And that's where I draw the parallel to addiction, right? Is like you were talking about Dr. Smith, like the difference between somebody just making decisions or lifestyle choices versus the physiological response or neurological makeup in the body. So I'm wondering if we can spend a little bit of time or if you can delve a little bit deeper in explaining the disease of addiction from the neurological or physiological aspect. And you hit on it a little bit already talking about like the mesolimbic pathway. Um, but is there anything more to ex explore there? Unfortunately, we don't really completely know what the what kind of all contributes to the disease of addiction. There's a lot of different parts of the brain that we know can kind of light up in these kind of addictive pathways. We know that there's obviously is a genetic predisposition so that there are some people who have are more predisposed to something like alcoholism. And we, we kind of postulate that these pathways may be disordered in, in these individuals, even at kind of a, a base genetic baseline. And that um, adding a, a substance like alcohol or opiates or things like that into that thing, that environment seemed to work. We know that there's a number of different neurotransmitters or hormones in the brain. And the one that seems to be most significant in addiction is a, a brain hormone called dopamine. And that really is part of this kind of brain pathway that I talked about, the mesolimbic pathway, and that um, compounds that tend to increase dopamine levels tend to be what we sort of view as addictive substances. Drug like methamphetamine or cocaine will directly affect how um, dopamine is, is released and processed by the body. Um, other medicine or other drugs like um, heroin or alcohol seem to use other um, parts of the pathway using things like the opiate receptor to sort of access the dopamine system. But I, I've a lot of times have heard the addiction sort of described on a really neurochemical level as just a um, inappropriate release or response to dopamine. And this is kind of what we talk about as sort of a reward pleasure pathway. And um, a lot of times the reward pleasure pathways can override. It's very hard for, for people to bring that back into regulation. Yes, agreed. Um, and, and I think that um, we'll talk probably about this more later, but the best, one of the best ways to treat that dysregulation um, is going to be prevention. Um, and so I imagine more to come. Um, but, but as to the neurobiology here, I totally agree with Dr. Smoltnik. Thank you for that overview. And, you know, to further highlight some other areas too, like the nucleus accumbens is an area um, that's involved with dopamine production, release and letdown, but also it's highly involved with reward pathways, right? When we think about drive, um, what drives individuals, whether it is, um, you know, things is simple. I mean, when we kind of go back to basic needs as far as food, right? Um, or sex um, or, or other 
basic drives and core needs, you throw that into the complexity of the society that we live in right now. Um, and and it, there's all kinds of drives that are out there. So, so what's interesting about um, addiction in general is that as Dr. Smutnik, you know, really eloquently stated, you know, there is certainly neurobiology and genetic predisposition. Um, and then there are environmental factors, right? And certainly other risk factors as well that can lead to um, further precipitation or exacerbation of dysregulation of dopamine in these pathways. But also, you know, when we think about individuals that may be just more predisposed to high risk, risky behaviors, um, and thinking about the role that trauma um, and adverse childhood experiences or events, ACEs, um, we'll hear about certainly increased risk overall for not only at a neurological, um, you know, baseline of there being dysregulation, but also thinking about how that leads to psychosocial um, pathways and predictors that may lead to individuals using um, medications and substances. So there's sort of the core genetics and neurobiology that the reality that we all um, could be impacted um, by addiction. I think that's something else too that I can sort of weave in here with that. We know that, that addiction is a neurobiologically based illness and it's a chronic relapsing remitting illness and disease and that genetics play an important component to, to that, but they are not the defining factor of addiction. And that simply being predisposed or not predisposed to addiction does not determine ultimately whether someone may potentially struggle with addiction. I think it is those other environmental factors, which we know clearly can also influence a person's ability to, to struggle with addiction. And also again, through prevention, through looking through that lens, by preventing or you know, early intervention with treatment of adverse childhood experiences or other stressors and triggers, we can, regardless of genetic factors and neurobiology, also um, kind of mold and potentially avert um, struggles associated with addiction. You know, oftentimes historically too, um, and it goes along with the stigma of this illness that frankly we know so much about and yet have still so much to learn that oftentimes the topic of a moral failing um, has come into play where, well, if you just tried a little bit harder or, you know, if you weren't so lazy or if you did this or you, or you did that, I mean, we, we've heard that same sort, those same sort of arguments with diabetes, right, or, or other areas of medicine um, with chronic illnesses. And we know that, frankly, it's just not that simple. And because if it was, um, most people, um, you know, especially over time, when they struggle with addiction and they face the consequences that come with it, both from, you know, a social standpoint, legal standpoint and implications, as well as just um, the strain, the stress, the detriment that, that substance use and addiction has on the body over time, most people would let it go. And yet we still find that they struggle again and again and again. So this is much, much more complicated than, than a moral failing and it is not, it is not a moral failing um, whatsoever. And I think that the more that we're able to have these conversations about the interplay between neurobiology, genetics, and then social and environmental factors that come into play, 
that's where we're going to start having more of a conversation about how we can get to the root of these issues and also prevent and more effectively address these issues, you know, as they come up. So when somebody decides that, you know, they're ready to get treatment or decides that MAT is the right treatment through them, through whatever that process looks like for that individual, how long are they involved with medication assisted treatment or what does that process look like for an individual? It it is it is somewhat person dependent. It's, it's, it's dependent on the individual and the circumstances. Um, and and I, I think one, one of the things that we always try to keep in mind is that, you know, when, when we're providing patient-centered care, we first and foremost wanna hear and understand what are the goals of the individual? And then we wanna tailor that with, you know, what do we know that evidence-based medicine, evidence-based practice shows us about Kind of long long-term outcomes in recovery right so in a nutshell though what are we talking about here the best evidence would say that um, for therapy and for medications that when someone is starting these medications and taking them it, really the the longer that they are able to achieve and maintain a period of sobriety and stability is going to bode the best outcomes, um, not only while they're on medication, and we can talk a bit about that, but, but also just long-term throughout the course of their life. Because we have to think when someone's been actively struggling with addiction, um, things can just be chaotic, just total chaos at times in their lives. And so what we've got to do first and foremost, before we can really even work on, you know, putting things back together in their life, we just have to work on stabilizing, right? So we, we've got we've to work on creating a period of stability and recovery. And then once we're able to get that stability, then we've got to work on, you know, really helping someone to, to rebuild their lives in a lot of ways um, and building on the good that, that is there. So, so what does that look like realistically? Well, it depends on the individual, it depends on the substance, it depends on the severity and the duration of use. Um, we can take opioid use disorder, for example. Um, you know, SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration, um, you know, federal government organization has now advised in their most recent guidelines looking at um, opioid treatment um, and potentially, you know, buprenorphine treatment that they actually don't define um, the, the most optimal period of time as far as there being a limit on that any longer. What they state is that that is the decision of the patient and the individual and a conversation that should be had with that individual and their provider, but that as long as they are taking the medication, receiving benefit from the medication and not having side effects, that that really there is not a time limit. What I would say realistically is when I talk to patients about starting a medication like this, I say, realistically, please give me a year. I need a year to be able to help you to achieve and maintain stability and then work on recovery so that we can put together um, you know, scaffolds and, and different areas to support and maintain your recovery whether or not you're on medication down the road. Because really what we're thinking about and talking about is changing neurobiology, right? Like we're, we're trying to work on rewiring neural pathways in our brains to say, I'm stressed out, I'm really overwhelmed. Instead of going to, you know, I need to, you know, 
drink that beer or go get that hit of heroin or cocaine, I'm going to turn that around and, and I'm going to go to a meeting. I'm going to go and talk to my loved one. I'm going to go exercise. I'm going to go and, and, and try to rewire my, my, my reflexive thinking into positive pro-social things. That takes time. Yeah. Um, and so I, I could certainly say more, but I, I'm, I'll turn it over to Dr. Uh, Smilnick if you have other thoughts there too, please. Yeah, yeah. Thank, thanks. Yeah, that, that was definitely a good sort of start. And I, I wholeheartedly agree that that probably at least a year for most um, addictions that come to my practices is, is sort of a, a mainstay of where I would look at kind of how often, how much do you need treatment? The other thing that a lot of times I'll talk to people about is where is your life now versus where is it when you started the treatment? And I tell people to not use this as kind of a judgment statement because a lot of times people will kind of judge, well, it doesn't feel like I've made a lot of progress. And, and um, there are some times where people don't, where people go through periods where they're kind of spinning their wheels and they're not making a lot of progress. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they're not doing the right stuff. It's just that, that their life is not progressing along. So, and a lot of times I'll, I'll kind of talk to them about like the dimensions of recovery and the dimensions of health, meaning that um, how, how are they feeling about their personal health? How are they feeling about their their home life and their home situation? How are they feeling about their community? And how are they feeling about their sense of purpose? So um, there's some people who um, maybe with their addiction that they were kind of in danger of losing their job or in danger of losing their marriage um, or had some mild legal troubles. And within three or four months, they can turn all this stuff around and things will be really good. There are other people who, I mean, may be homeless, don't have any significant relationships and, and have um, are facing significant jail or prison time. And that may take them three or four years to really um, turn that piece around. And they may be stuck in a situation where, where they, they just aren't, things aren't working out for them. They're not falling into place. And what I'll kind of tell those folks is that you, you probably will need to be on these treatments for longer than somebody who has a really robust support network and has a lot of resources, so. I'm wondering about the definition of sobriety or being sober. Um, I've, I'm relatively new to this, this work, to substance use prevention, to this area of substance use discussion and in talking with some people in the treatment space and the recovery space, specifically when it comes to like sober living facilities, there are some, as I understand it, who, you know, they have rules of, of who can live there and, and what the rules are of living in that house, which makes sense. And from my understanding, there are some who don't allow you to take up residence there if you are on medications like buprenorphine, Suboxone, that kind of thing. Um, can you speak to that at all? Is there a singular definition of sobriety? Does it vary from individual to individual or situation to situation? Absolutely. Um, I think uh, we, we see in this work that sobriety um, 
can and is defined um, in, a, in a variety of different ways. I almost think about it in sort of as like a continuum um, when we think about the different you know, definitions or the way that it resonates or what it means for different folks. Um, there, there are sober living communities and different organizations that, you know, they at times may define sobriety as um, abstinence from any and all substances and or medications. Um, so it could just be a hard, you know, you know, no medications or substances of any kind. And, and we certainly want to honor and respect um, our colleagues who, who have um, that perspective. Um, it is one perspective that, that works for some people. I would say that along with that, you know, that is certainly not the only perspective, nor is that necessarily gonna be the pathway that works for everyone. Um, and so, I, you know, the way that I often approach these conversations and discussions and, and treatment is, I think in working with an individual and a family, the first thing we need to understand is, what is your goal? Like, how are you defining sobriety and recovery? Because that, you know, and I threw in recovery there, I know that you you asked about sobriety, but, but I think that those things, while they're not the same, they do go hand in hand in many ways. And so like, what are we talking about here when we think about sobriety and recovery? And, you know, oftentimes our ultimate end goal is total abstinence, right? And I think that, that that makes sense for a lot of people. Abstinence and being on a recovery medication like buprenorphine, I would say are certainly, you know, not the same thing in that like you can be abstinent and be on a recovery medication um, and that doesn't make your abstinence or sobriety, um, you know, any less true. Um, but I, I think, yes, number one, it's really kind of acknowledging and identifying like where someone is coming from and what are their goals? Because for some people, they might say, well, I'm not going to be able to give up um, drinking alcohol. You know, I, I drink, you know, a liter of whiskey a day right now, and I'm not in a place where I can see myself now or ever like totally giving that up. But I definitely see that it's not good for me. And that at the rate that I'm going, um, I'm not going to be around a lot longer. And I and I need and I want to cut back. Okay, you know maybe that's not exactly in line with you know the best evidence-based guidelines as far as overall health. But but I think from a harm reductionist standpoint, we can still. I mean, they need to be the patient's goals. They need to be the individual's goals, right? But we can. There's a way I think that we can marry that with meeting a person where they're at and then working on a program of recovery that will, will need to be in many ways mutually agreed upon, but ultimately defined and driven by the individual. And I think that's a place to start because in doing this work, we know that it's not all or none. You know, if it was that simple of, well, just stop using people would do it. Or, you know, we as providers and other organizations, we would just help them get there, right? But it, it's not that simple. And so I think that, you know, in summation, what I'm saying here is that we got to meet people where they're at. And we, we've, we want to set a high bar and a high goal and standard, but we also need to be realistic in how we're going to get there. And I don't, I'm not suggesting that we settle for less or that we, that patients and individuals and families and communities settle for less but I think that progress 
is not always linear and it takes time. And so sometimes if, if we move forward, we might take some steps back, but we keep moving forward. Ultimately, that is progress. And I think that that's, you know, something that's been helpful for me to, to hold on to and think about it and, and use, I think, impatience find that beneficial when we think about this process not always being linear, but that we want to keep driving progress forward. Yeah, and I, I definitely agree with that the that nonlinearity piece. I, I went to a, a training a, a few years back where they drew a picture of, hey, we're trying to get from point A to point B, and they drew a straight line. And um, then basically they said, this is the fastest way, but this is not the way that most people get from point A to point B. And then they squiggled a whole bunch of lines that went up and down and sideways and backwards. And they said, yep, this is, this is how most people get from point A to point B and really anything that they're doing, but especially in, in places where they're making difficult behavioral changes. Um, as far as kind of the different treatment models and, and why there's some places which are um, kind of termed abstinence-based versus, um, versus sort of more of the medication-assisted um, um, places. And I, I think there is a little bit of a dichotomy in this. It, it used to be a much larger dichotomy than I think it is today, where there were kind of the, the um, peer Alcoholics Anonymous folks. Um, and then there was kind of the... the um, kind of the methadone clinic model and those people didn't really talk to each other particularly much. But I think a lot of the, the pieces have kind of been breaking down or looking at things. And kind of my journey um, when I started working at um, Novo, which is an abstinence-based residential facility, um, their kind of um, models were based on primarily working with alcoholics um, who were in their 50s. Um, so a, kind of a later stage alcoholic was, that was kind of their, their um, patient population until about 2010. And then what happened was it went from 80, 90, 10 to 80, 20 to 50-50 with, with um, people who had heroin addiction issues. And what we kind of learned was that those people didn't do very well in a purely abstinence-based, um, no medication type of environment, or at least not as well as some of the alcoholic folks. And I was kind of brought in and we, we experimented a little bit with, with um, the use of buprenorphine in that facility. Um, and what we came to the conclusion was, was we're, we weren't really very good at it that we didn't have the nursing staff, we didn't have the, the supervision that we needed to do that piece. And we looked at other stuff and we looked at some um, withdrawal medicines to help people through the withdrawal process. Um, we looked at tightening up those protocols and we looked at medicines like naltrexone and Vivitrol and we said, hey, this is where we're, we're strong. If we use these types of medicines um, and we combine that with some of our 12-step abstinence-based models, that's really what we're good at. And we, if we're not doing stuff that we're not good at, um, that may not be our niche in this market. So, um, so that was, um, 
a lot of those things are, are, are what's going on. And um, I've kind of gotten a lot of the counselors and people to say, well, there are people that um, our, our program may not be what is, what is needed. And we can discover that and recommend those other things to them without saying, well, you failed the program. It was just, hey, our program is not what you need. Um, so I think that's uh, um, kind of where we're, where um, some of this stuff is moving and seeing is saying, you know, there is space in, in, in drug and alcohol treatment for all of these folks. It just is how, how do we keep that space where it should be, so. Based on your experience, is there a one size fits all treatment plan or has there ever been a one size all one size fits all treatment plan for the patient population that you have dealt with, regardless of substance? Yes or no? No, no. That's what I suspected. And I think that's important. I mean, you guys have both said it, we need to meet people where they are. And as you're moving through this process, the important thing is that people are seeking treatment. They are asking for help. They are working towards recovery. And you can figure out that this way or that way doesn't work for them without meaning that they have failed um, or that there is no hope or no options for them. Second lightning question. What is your average first age of use reported by your patient population? Of any of any substance, or substance yeah. or anything, including nicotine, tobacco? Uh, let's leave nicotine or tobacco out of it. Let's go alcohol, marijuana, other substances. Average first age of use for your patients? Teens, um, most definitely. Adolescence is, is prime time for a variety of reasons. Yeah, I would say probably um, late middle school, early high school. So, and, and you have mentioned it a couple of times, Dr. Lanou, prevention, you know, and the old saying, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And of course, Breakwater has a big focus on prevention. We have the Drug-Free Communities Grant, which is focused on prevention specifically in youth. We see the same thing locally, middle and high school students that start reporting use of alcohol, marijuana, prescription drugs that are not prescribed to them as early as 14 years old. And of course, the earlier you start to use, the higher your risk of developing a significant substance use disorder later in life is. From your perspective, based on your experience, what you've learned from, seen, and heard from patients, where do you think the biggest opportunity for prevention is? And what does that prevention look like? Overall, I would say, you know, the earlier, the better. And, and certainly, you know, we know that substance use starts typically in, um, you know, curiosity and kind of trying um, in later childhood, early adolescence. I think that is the place even a little bit earlier, you could argue before, you know, use even starts. Um, and maybe it's not addiction, but maybe it's use and trying you know, being able to provide education early and to be able to do it in a very thoughtful way, but also to, to provide early prevention and education to individuals, um, but also to families. These are community issues. These are family issues. And these issues don't exist in silos. Um, so what I would say is that Rarely, if ever, do we see that someone is 
just using substances and that there are not current or past issues, whether it's trauma or stress or adverse childhood experiences, anything that has not likely influenced substance use then or, or later on. So the earlier, the better. There's definitely different stages where we can talk about different things. A lot of times in um, early childhood, it's basically like what makes you feel good and what makes you feel bad and that feelings are okay. And that if you are feeling bad, you don't need to hide that and you can, and you can, you can express it to, to caring people. And if you don't have a caring person that's really close to you, there's ways to get those caring people. Um, through mentorship programs or boys and girls clubs or things like that. Um, I think probably we're really kind of talking about the drugs and alcohol makes a lot of sense, I think, is in like late elementary and early middle school. If you had one word of advice for parents on how they can help prevent their kids, so taking it from the community level down to the individual level, what advice would you give to parents? What is the most impactful way or most important way for them to help prevent their children from getting involved with substance use at an early age? Talk about it um, and talk about it before it's an issue or a problem. And I would say, I mean, it's not, it's not always easy. It's not always clear when there's an issue. I, I think more than anything else, going back to that piece of prevention is just having honest and open discussions, obviously, you know, developmentally appropriate for your child or individual. But, but I, I think that by talking about it, we help to bring these issues out of the shadows and we, we acknowledge that they're significant and they're concerning, but they're also not something that we necessarily have to fear because we can do something about it. Um, and I think that we talk about you know, the, the harm and the impact that substances have on our bodies and on our communities. But that also, if it's an issue, that we talk about it there too, and that we try not to shy away from having those difficult discussions. And I, I certainly can respect that that is easier said than done. But I think talking about it is where it starts. Wisconsin DHS has a campaign out right now. I'm not sure if you've seen it. It's called Small Talks. And it talks about Exactly that, having small talks with your kids about underage drinking, you know, starting around age eight or nine and just asking, hey, what do you know? What do you see? Do you have any questions? And I think that as well as what you've just said is important for parents to hear and understand that it doesn't have to be a big intimidating dinner table conversation. It can be five minutes in the car. It can be while you're walking the dog around the block. And one thing that I know we hear from parents is the balance of how do I talk to them about it and educate them about it? How do I share my experiences with it? And, you know, we all have those mistakes we don't want our children to repeat, right? So, but how do I talk about it without piquing their curiosity? That's one concern that's been there, I think, since the dawn of time is if I talk about it, Will I pique their curiosity and make them want to go do it? 
Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. And so as a child and adolescent psychiatrist, this comes up um, in so many ways frequently and beyond even substances, right? It, it's, it could be, you know, sex or, or so many other things. I, the, the thing that I frequently talk about with families is, okay, I, I hear that. I respect that. I always want to respect a family's wishes and their viewpoints. And we also know that because if we're not talking about it, it doesn't mean that they're not hearing about it. Does that make sense? So like, just because we're not talking about it at home or in treatment or wherever it may be, it doesn't mean that with social media or peers, that they're not, that, that young children, adolescents, that they're not hearing about it. I agree that, that I think that this is a bit of an art. It's a bit of a dance, so to speak, in that, yeah, we don't want to prematurely, you know, introduce information or deliver it in a way that's not developmentally appropriate. But I think that there, we have to acknowledge that if we're not talking about it, it doesn't mean, like I mentioned, that they're not hearing about it. Um, and then I, I would just say briefly as well, you know, I think looking for opportunities if families are so inclined of like even not young, young children, but, you know, tweens and certainly adolescents of, you know, having the radio on and having like NPR or something on where they talk about, you know, these things coming up and that when these issues are coming up, that um, if a parent, if a family is so inclined that we not shy away from it and turn down the volume, but rather allow for a conversation to happen. Lastly, I would say modeling. You know, parents, it, when we're able to model to our children talking about difficult things and, and being vulnerable in an appropriate way of just saying, you know, like, yeah, the, these things are big issues and they, they make me sad um, to hear that people are struggling. But I also know that there's a lot of hope and there's a lot of things that we can do and are doing. I think when we kind of can show that balanced perspective and show appropriate vulnerability and also model to our youth the way that we can problem solve and work through difficult situations, that typically is pretty helpful as well. We know that COVID-19, the pandemic response has caused a lot of increased stress, anxiety issues for everybody nationwide, not just locally. It's, I feel like every day, at least every week on the news, there's stories about somebody who, you know, somebody famous who had been in recovery for a while had a relapse or somebody is now speaking out about their difficulties with mental health, substance use, addiction, um, or the quote unquote pandemic drinking has become a class of its own. And there's always a new article and a new study coming out about um, the effects of that pandemic drinking and more alcohol at home and more access to alcohol at home for teenagers. And particularly with the drinking women in their thirties, right? So as counselors, as treatment providers, as people who work within the addiction substance use space, what are your biggest concerns about the impact of the pandemic response on mental health and substance use if we fast forward one year? So, I mean, I think kind of my biggest concern, I would say, is that, that it's, it's going to be um, kind of a tough it's a, it'll be kind of a long road back that people are are expecting that the pandemic will just end like it began hey you know we 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 took a cruise we took a cruise in february the stuff was shut down in march 
we get the vaccine and we can go back and go back to our normal life um, after that. So I would say that would be my biggest concern is it's, it's not going to, the, fl- the switch is not going to flip and we're not going to go back to normal. The other thing that I would say is it's okay not to be okay. It's okay not to be okay with this stuff, um, but it's also, it's also okay to ask for help. So those are kind of the, the two sort of things with this is that um, we're all struggling in, in a number of different ways. Some people are struggling more than others, but like we can say, you know, we're not getting together for Thanksgiving and I'm not okay with that. And I'd like to talk about it is kind of what I hope it will, will kind of come out of this piece. I agree. Um, I would just say briefly that I, I think in my mind, we, we can hypothesize what may come, but we really just don't know. And that's adding more to the uncertainty um, of this time. And that's not easy to swallow. Um, you know, uh, a couple things briefly is there's a Lancet article that just came out looking at the bi-directional relationship of COVID and, and mental illness um, and kind of, you know, chicken or the egg. Um, I think that that um, will be interesting to see how that plays out. And hopefully um, we have an opportunity for prevention here and that this is the time more than ever to focus on self-care and to focus on staying connected however possible. I think one of the the most devastating aspects of this pandemic is the isolation that that people are forced to endure. And it's it's understandable um, why we need to be distanced, but my hope is that while we never want a pandemic that, or or something awful like this to, to happen, there I think could be good that comes to, and that hopefully this can create conversations more and more about addressing mental health care issues and addressing addiction issues um, and just having a, a more open conversation too. I really appreciate all of you taking the time out of your day to have this conversation and help, you know, hopefully reduce some of the stigma around substance use, around addiction, around asking for help. Is there any last things that you guys want to share? Thank you for inviting us. It's a pleasure. Um, and, um, you know, I think that more than anything else, like we talked about a little bit earlier, just having those conversations, I think is so important. And, and when we when we can come together as communities, regardless of backgrounds or affiliations or or belief systems, frankly, but when we can come together as individuals and as people and we can talk, I think we can get a lot done. I, I also appreciate the opportunity to talk. And what my kind of parting thoughts is are that really from an addiction treatment standpoint, we're in a better place from the quality of treatments and the things that we have to offer than we ever have been. And there is a lot of reason for hope. So even though we're in a period where sometimes it's hard to find hope, um, I think that um, I always tell people, even if I can't help them, I, I don't think they're beyond help. So that the that kind of keep the faith and and that there is hope that things will improve, whether it be related to addiction, whether it be related to mental health, or whether it be related to to COVID or other things. So well, I hope you all have a good rest of your day. And it is Friday, so a good weekend. And I look forward to talking with you again in the future. Thanks so much. Thank you. You as well.